a common theme for me as we start out. The old Chinese curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. By that criteria, we are living in cursed times because they're nothing if not interesting. Take, for instance, politics. In the United States, this is just a brief opening so we can get past the politics quickly. Because because of the Wu flu pandemic, the secretaries of states of various, we call them blue states, took it upon themselves to change the voting laws to allow drop box voting in violation of their own state constitutions. And I say to that, hmm, interesting. When the Republican uh, presidential campaign challenged these extra constitutional changes in court, it was ruled that they had no standing in court. And I love this idea of no standing, that people can't sue unless they have standing. But they had no standing because they had not yet suffered harm. And then after the election, when they had been harmed, and I love this even more, they didn't have any standing to sue because there was no remedy in case they won the lawsuit. There's no remedy for, for an election that was decided unjustly. And to that I say, that's interesting. That's interesting. And when that election was protested at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, it was claimed that the protesters were armed violent extremists, despite the fact that the only violence that happened came from the Capitol Police against the protesters. And again, interesting, interesting. In their various court appearances, those protesting say that they were actually ushered into the Capitol by the police themselves, even introducing video evidence on their behalf. Convicted despite the evidence, these trespassers received harsher sentences than murderers and rapists do. And I sit back and I say, you know, that, 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 that is really interesting. Interesting time in times indeed. It, it really makes you wonder who is telling the truth. Who can you really trust? It brings back the old Groucho Marx line. Who are you going to trust? The government or your own lion eyes, right? Now, I'd like to say that this is a modern development, this political and judicial treachery. But then, what would we make of it being an ancient Chinese proverb, right? It's always been around this way. This has always been the case that times have been interesting. I mean, just recently I was looking up the case of the Trojan horse, right? Greeks bearing gifts and all that bring a... Bring a and now, this is mythology, but I'm pointing out that the treachery was known 3,000 years ago. The Greek gift to their enemies uh, that brought about the city's destruction. I mean, the Trojan horse is called a Trojan horse not because of the... Um, USC football team. It's called that because of treachery that was involved. A Greek gift to their enemies that brought about 
the city of Troy's destruction. Afterwards, the citizens of Troy, and this is a direct quote, shook their heads and said, boy, that was interesting, wasn't it? Deceit of this kind is by no means a modern invention. Indeed, the ancient times were unparalleled in deceit. And and as I thought about that, I thought, you know, we're really pikers nowadays about our deceit. And the reason we're uh, pikers is we still have ringing down through the centuries a Judeo-Christian understanding of fair play. But they didn't have that in the ancient, ancient world. There was no such thing as fair play until Moses basically brought it down from Mount Sinai. Go back to Jacob stealing Esau's blessing and birthright. Uh, first by feeding Isaac. Isaac says to, uh, to Jacob, who he thinks is Esau, bring me you know, that wonderful game stew you make. Well, Jacob can't cook. Okay? So, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, cooks the wonderful, has him get two goats, cooks this wonderful stew, brings it to Isaac. Isaac loved it, by the way. He, he didn't like the sound of Jacob's voice. And he said, it doesn't sound like Isaac. Let me feel your arms. But Rebecca was ahead of him and had covered his arms, the skins of the goat. And Esau must have been very hairy indeed if you've ever felt a goat. I mean, that's a pretty hairy thing. Anyway, he's, he then, uh, he's wearing Esau's clothes and the skins of goats to pretend to be his brother. And this was just penny-ante penny treachery by ancient standards. Much, much worse than this went on. I mean, this, this was playful treachery uh, compared to other things that went on. But now we see in today's passage, we have the disciples in Jerusalem reacting to something that they think is treachery. In fact, they think, I'd like to say this was the first false flag episode, but it probably wasn't. People have been pretending to be something they have been since the beginning of time. Acts 9, 26-31 reads, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. I should point out we're talking about Paul here. You've been here for the other ones, but this is Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So verse 26 shows the... the, um, 
the disciples in Jerusalem's dilemma. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, the last that the apostles had seen of Paul, Stephen had been murdered and buried. He was off on his way to Damascus with a letter from the chief priests to haul everybody back, that he found, any Christian he found, back in chains for trials and then prison and possibly even executions. Now, of course, Paul, Peter, and John, and the rest had heard of the strange events that Paul suffered on the road to Damascus. The word got back to Jerusalem that Paul saw the Lord on the road to Damascus and was now a Christian. And that now he was preaching in the synagogues in Damascus. However, Saul had not returned in a timely manner to Jerusalem. Remember, we've had a three-year thing here. So he goes off. It's not that far a journey. It's not like he was going to Ethiopia, which wasn't Ethiopia, but Sudan. Never mind. He wasn't going off to Ethiopia. He was going a week's journey north to Damascus. And that's as far as he went. But when he converted, he did not come back in a timely manner and present himself to the apostles and say, look, I'm a changed man. So they don't really know what's going on when he shows up. When he finally does, he presents himself to the apostles to prove his conversion or his adherence to the orthodox beliefs. Now, what had he been doing for three years? He'd been preaching in Damascus and Arabia, but what had he been teaching? Had he, away from the influence of the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, been truly preaching Christ? This is something the, the apostles, the disciples in Jerusalem, could not know. What was he teaching? Or was he, or was he like Simon the magician, had he been seduced into setting himself up as the master of a false religion. How would the disciples know? Paul had not returned to be approved by them, to study with them. Or even worse than that, as he appears in Jerusalem after a three-year absence, they had to wonder if Paul was perpetuating a false flag operation. Was he trying to get close to the apostles to get into an inner circle so that he can finally strike one death blow at the Christian church? These are things that they did not know. So as Luke says here, the apostles were afraid of him and did not believe that he had really become a Christian. Beyond the problem of the apostles being afraid of him, the Jews of Jerusalem who had sent him off on this mission with letters from the high priest and supposedly financing to go persecute these Christians in Damascus and bring them back, now they were his enemies. They were not happy with him. So the apostles are not happy with him on one side. The Jews are not happy with him on the other side. Paul is not the most popular person in Jerusalem on that day. And... By the way, you, you know 
by the last verse that I read of our passage, and we'll cover that one more time, um, that he was not appreciated in Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You can remember where we've seen Barnabas before because we have seen him in Acts. I really didn't dwell on him much then because we were actually getting into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 4, 32-37 shows us Barnabas for the first time. This passage is just at the formation of the brand new Christian church. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And the next verse says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is the first time we see Barnabas doing a generous act. He is never disparaged in the Gospels. Barnabas, he was called the son of encouragement, had been with the apostles from the beginning of the church. There is no reason to believe that he was not a disciple of Jesus earlier than that. We'll see how much, we'll see much more of Barnabas in Acts as he and Paul together evangelized the Gentiles. They worked together until they had a disagreement over John Mark. Now the disagreement was not a personality clash between Paul and Barnabas. They had a disagreement about John Mark, who was Barnabas's young cousin. John Mark had quit on Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, and when the apostle and Barnabas were planning another trip, Paul refused to take John Mark along with him. And Barnabas parted ways with Saul at that point, and took John Mark under his wing and basically discipled him, built him up in the faith. In this way, God used a discouraging situation to effectively double the missionary outreach and and to rehabilitate the young. John Mark, to the point that the Apostle Paul asked that John Mark in the letter of 2 Timothy, and it's at 4.11, be sent to him as he would be helpful in his ministry. So, God used this disagreement between John and, uh, between Paul and Barnabas, not to separate them permanently, but to bring them all back together as an effective team. So Barnabas parted parted ways with Paul and taking John Mark under his wing, I already did that part. This then is the Barnabas 
who put his credibility on the line for Paul at this point, who the apostles were afraid to meet with. Barnabas defended Paul's conversion and preaching in Damascus. Verse uh, 28 says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul, thanks to Barnabas, is finally accepted in Jerusalem by the Christians. One wonders if the fear of the apostles was overstated. You know, much as we saw last week, Luke is writing a history that he has gotten from somebody else. But Paul, later on, gives his first-hand experience to add to, Aaron will like this, to add to Luke's description, to further supplement what went on. Paul gives his first-hand experience in Galatians 1, 18-24. We looked at 18 last week, and it was said, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas for 15 days. Paul says he was there less than two weeks to visit Peter, Cephas. In Greek, the fuller meaning of visit is to inquire. To visit with somebody is to inquire of, of them. And it is suspected that Paul went to inquire of Peter to to compare notes on what truly was Christian orthodoxy and was he adhering to it. It can only be assumed that Paul was found to be authentic both in character and in teaching. Galatians 1, 19-24 sums up the rest of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. And he says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul says, in effect, that despite Luke saying that he, the, the apostles were afraid of him, that the only apostle in, uh, apostle in Jerusalem when he was there was Peter. And he said, and the brother of Jesus. And called him an apostle, which is interesting because we know that the brother of Jesus, James, was not an apostle, but apparently it was close enough for Paul to one of the early members of the church. Verse 29a says, And ye spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And so that's a fine how do you do. Uh, Paul takes over Stephen's place in disputing with the Hellenists. And you'll remember that Paul previously joined in, even if passively, in Stephen's murder, in Stephen's stoning. Paul was there. And, and if it was Paul who debated Stephen and lost in the Church of the Freedmen, I guarantee you he did not lose against the Hellenists here. Because this time... Disputing the Hellenists, he had the facts on his side just as Stephen did. 
And you know this is true because of verse 29b, which says, but they were seeking to kill him. Now, some of the commentaries that I read that notoriously have no sense of humor said that the uh, Jerusalem church was finding out it was more dangerous to have Paul on their side than have him against them. Okay? Because, remember, after Paul had driven everybody, all the Hellenists out of the church, and then pursued them to Damascus, the disciples, the uh, apostles stayed behind. The, the Hebrew Jews were not attacked. It was the Hellenistic Jews who were being attacked. Now, Paul comes back, and by preaching again against the Hellenistic Jews, he is causing trouble in Jerusalem for the entire Christian church. Since Paul has been gone to Damascus and Arabia, things have been calm for the church. Now he's back and and murder was in the air once again. Faced with the threat of the murder of Paul, verse 30 says, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now once again, Luke gives us a a truncated overview of what happened there with Paul in Jerusalem with the Hellenistic Jews. But in Acts 22, uh, uh, 17 through 21, Paul gives us his perspective of what happened during this first trip to Jerusalem as a Christian. Now in chapter 21, we see Paul in Jerusalem once again. Paul was accused of leading Gentiles away from the law of Moses. So Paul enters the temple to explain himself. It does not go well, and this is in chapter 21. It does not go well, and Paul is arrested by a Roman cohort. And before he was jailed, he he asked to address the Jews who had sought his arrest, and in this speech, a defense of his Christian missionary activities. Paul talks of his Damascus conversion, and then speaks of his first Christian trip to Jerusalem. Chapter 22, 17 through 21 says, When I had returned to Jerusalem, so that's when he returned to Jerusalem from being in Arabia, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, which was Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, perhaps I'm wrong, but I think, I think Paul might be the only Christian to face the risen Lord and argue with him. Because Paul here says, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, which was probably good, good news to the church in Jerusalem that Paul was going to get sent far away. So what Paul says was Paul, when he was threatened with murder by the Hellenistic Jews, was reluctant to leave Jerusalem. He thought he was the best person to bring the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. 
I suspect that were it just the disciples there that wanted that wanted him to leave, that he would have resisted them. And they very possibly might have, and him not leaving might very possibly have resulted in his death. But as he says, Jesus appeared to him in the temple and directed him to make haste in leaving Jerusalem. And so he does. And with Paul's departure, calm returns to Jerusalem and the church is left in peace. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. And and with that, Paul disappears in the narrative of Acts. He doesn't reappear until chapter 12. And chapter 12 takes place basically 11 years after this scene we just saw. Paul is gone from the narrative for the next 11 years. And we can date this by going forward in Acts and finding where where Paul shows up again. And it says, Now Herod... And this is where, just before, Paul is mentioned again. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, This is chapter uh, 12, uh, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give the God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and breathed the last. And I believe that that was the favorite passage of Niels when he was growing up of uh, of Herod falling down and being eaten by worms. Now, this Herod, you have to know who this Herod was to date this correctly. This Herod was not Herod the Great of uh, Jesus' uh, nativity fame, who died in about 2 BC. It is not even Herod's grandson, Herod II, who died about the time that we're talking about here, uh, uh, AD 33, AD 34. Uh, So that's when... Uh, Herod's son, Herod II, died. This is um, Herod Agrippa I. And this demise, we just read, occurred about 44 AD. So, immediately after this event, verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And that's where we will pick up Saul again in Acts. So the next time we catch up with him in Acts, it will be sometime after 44 AD, 11 years later. Now, I was talking, I started about this sermon about talking about the possibility of false flag operations in our present day. Uh, Were the disciples in Jerusalem concerned with that possibility from Paul, their former nemesis, Saul of Tarsus? Probably, they were probably... Probably half of them, not number-wise, but probably in their own minds, they half believed that Paul had this in them to, to turn them over to the uh, authorities to, 
to um, stab them in the back. Were the disciples in Jerusalem um, concerned about whether or not he was truly a Christian? Probably. Barnabas, however, vouched for Paul's integrity. He probably knew that with Paul's temperament, he would never stab you in the back. Instead of some, they'll stab you in the front. And that's what Paul would have done. Paul would never uh, stab somebody in the back when, uh, when it would be much more satisfying doing it another way. But what about today? With the batch of politicians representing us in Washington and being stabbed in the back is probably the best we can hope for. I have a client who told me that much earlier in her life she was a legislative assistant in Washington, D.C. And uh, she said to me, she said, um, Mike, no matter what you think of the politicians of either side out there, and here she had had me uh, waiting for words of hope, right? You know, she said, no matter what you might think of the uh, politicians on either side of the aisle out there, she says, they're much, much worse than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> okay, So there goes my hope for, um, for being treated well uh, because, because I can imagine them all being pretty awful and if they're much, much worse than I can even imagine, uh, we've had it. But, but before you say that I am to respect the, those in authority above me, and we've had those discussions before, Let's get God's perspective on this. Psalm 118, 8 through 9 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And that's truly where our our refuge should be. I really am losing hope in our princes and the men of this country. But the Lord says it is better to take refuge in the Lord. Psalm 146.3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Sense a a little animosity towards princes here. The disciples in Jerusalem were fearful of treachery on the part of Paul. Paul. I am afraid of treachery on the part of the people put in ahead of us, above us. Yes, we do live in interesting times. But so did the apostles. They lived in very interesting times. We're still reading about them today. So did King David. King David lived in very interesting times. Jacob and Abraham, they lived in very interesting times. Have you noticed that ever since the fall of man, man has nothing, had nothing, but we, we call it the curse of the fall for a reason. It's not really a curse of the fall, but it is ever since the fall of man, we have lived in interesting times. And it's because we rely too much on men and not enough on God. Interesting times indeed. 